Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hey everyone and welcome to another edition of Ducks Confidential. This is James Creppy with the Oregonian and Oregon Live. Welcome to another edition of the program, and we're going to go over and review Oregon's defense after spring practice, uh, such as it was, as we went through the offense a couple of weeks ago. Now that I'm wrapping up the 25-part post-spring position analysis and series that I do on an annual basis, wanted to go over and review the Ducks' defense. We'll also talk about the specialists as well, since they were part of it, and we're going to work our way from the front to the back, since that is how I wrote the series, uh, which will be wrapping up through the course of this week. So we'll actually be talking a little bit about uh, some of the spots in the secondary that uh, those will be coming in the days ahead on uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. But given that a couple of them uh, are a little bit less utilized, felt like being able to talk about it at this point, no reason to wait until next week. So let's start up front with the defensive line for Oregon. And obviously it has to start and end with Kayvon Thibodeau. Uh, He's obviously one of the best players, not only on Oregon's roster, uh, he's one of the best defensive players in the entire Pac-12, and he showed it as a true freshman last year. Took him a couple of games to get acclimated, but once he did, especially in the second half of last season, he really took off and became one of the best pass rushers, again, not only in the Pac-12. I think, honestly, he might have been the best pass rusher in the Pac-12. By the time he got everything going in the second half of last year, uh, if you had to compare how Kayvon Thibodeau was playing, in particular against better competition, compared to how Bradley and I was playing against better competition at the end of the season, uh, I don't think there really was much of a comparison. I think Thibodeau was playing better, far, far better, uh, and he showed it, and he had a better Pac-12 championship game. He had a a better bowl game. I had a better just finish to the year uh, compared to Anai, and Anai obviously was in that running for uh, Conference Defensive Player of the Year and the like. So Thibodeau is absolutely uh, the major, major edge-rushing, disruptive piece that any defense wants, tries to find, build itself around uh, for as long as they can have him. Uh, And he's absolutely that kind of piece and player for this Oregon defense. Uh, There's no other way to put it. He is a disruptive force. Uh, he gained some weight, uh, good weight, uh, that needed to be gained in order to be able to take on starting left tackles uh, in the Pac-12 and in non-conference play, whether it was Auburn last year in his very first game. But looking ahead on Oregon's schedule and having 
you know, a home and home series with Ohio State over the next two seasons, if you're going to take on the starting left tackle of the Ohio State Buckeyes, you're going to be end them whatever they face in, in bowl games and championship games and the like uh, that they aspire to reach in postseason play. If you're going to play those kind of guys, you've got to be able to withstand a lot of hits from very, very big men. Uh, so Thibodeau put on some weight over the course of last season uh, and especially this offseason mainly. So at this point, he finds himself in a really advantageous position. Now he's up to 250 pounds uh, as of the spring. Again, really in, in an outstanding position to really build upon uh, what he did last year. He was on fire in the last six games. He had 24 tackles, 10.5 for loss, 6.5 sacks in those last six games. Ended up just shy of his goal of 10 sacks for the season, but that's besides the point. Whether you get 9, 9.5, or 10 is, is kind of moot. Ultimately, we know what kind of disruptive player he can be, and he is absolutely the epitome of someone who lives up to the billing of being a highly touted and heralded recruit and somebody who comes in with that kind of billing who you very quickly can see that he could be a three-and-out NFL player. And long way to go until they get there, though. First comes year two and the start of year two, uh, and obviously a lot of excitement for Ducks fans when you look at a player like Kayvon Thibodeau coming off the edge. That is the anchor. That's how you start. You know, if you're going to build a defensive line, uh, you need that. You need that disruptive edge player. They have it in a huge way with Kayvon Thibodeau. Now, elsewhere at the defensive end, at the true defensive end position, uh, here it gets a little bit interesting because of DJ Johnson's move to tight end. On paper, he probably would have been the backup defensive end if not for that which is what made his move to tight end somewhat interesting uh, because from a playing time perspective, he might have actually been in line for more had he stayed on defense. Uh, But Oregon needed him to be on offense, and it's not that they are lacking options. uh, That's for sure. Uh, It's just a matter of exactly who those options are going to be on any given uh, personnel pairing, matchups, and the rest. Uh, But Mace Funa is in the mix. Could you say that Mace Funa could also be at stud end? Yes, we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, but depending on how they want to play at stud end, and you can come up with any number of combinations, and the defensive ends and stud ends are not wildly different. They do play uh, different roles in their most true of forms. So there is some difference there as far as the hand-in-the-ground true defensive end. I think Thibodeau is far and away at the top of the list. Funa can do that. Uh, and he has certainly, again, the size and explosive ability. You saw that at times last season. I think he'll end up ultimately being at the stud end spot, but I put him on paper behind Thibodeau. And then after that, it gets a little bit more interesting, whether that's an Austin Fallu, uh, who at 293 pounds is much more of a true interior player at this point, uh, and he'll be starting at defensive tackle. But, again, if, you, if you're talking about the right personnel package, uh, if they have to go heavy on the defensive line, then you're talking about putting in additional defensive tackles. Fallu has played on the edge before, and if you're doing on a obvious third and short kind of situation where there's three or four defensive linemen, but they're all interior size guys, then a Fallu moves to the outside. Braden Swinson was an early enrollee. We saw him a little bit in the spring. Same thing with Jake Shipley. I think they're going to ultimately, who ends up at the true DN, who ends up uh, 
at the stud end will get sorted out. I think they could both easily end up at defensive end, but that'll get sorted out in the preseason. Flipping over to the stud end, since we were just talking about it, I do think Funa uh, ends up taking over that role. Uh, That was a role that Bryson Young really took off, again, second half of last year, one of those defensive players that Oregon relied on in a huge way. He went from being a guy who really was a piece that just did not fit in the Oregon defense in years past to a guy who not just fit and not just started, uh, ascended and was just ablaze by the time his season was over. Uh, So he put himself in a great position, but he is no longer around. I think Mace Funa takes over. A couple of redshirt freshmen in the mix here, and it's actually quite interesting by way of just the sheer rotation here. Isaac Townsend. Uh, was working mainly with the second-team defense. He redshirted last year, really didn't play, uh, but put on significant weight. Same thing with Trevin Mai. Uh, they are both cut from very similar cloth in that they're both six foot five. Uh, Townsend at 265, Mai at 255. They both redshirted last year. They both needed to gain weight. They did, uh, but at six foot five, you see why they really are the perfect fit at that stud-end position and the true two-point stance edge rushing outside linebacker uh, who is big enough to, again, take on opposing left and right offensive tackles um, and rangy enough if they had to drop into coverage to where they could, uh, and especially at six foot five, but they have the length at six. When you're getting six, two plus, especially six, four plus, that's where you're going to end up lining up more closer to the line of scrimmage at the stud end spot. When you get into 6-2 is that's where Mace kind of falls in in that very uh, tweener stage of stud end versus true defensive end. Uh, when you get a little bit shorter, you can also end up uh, playing, obviously, in the traditional linebacker spots. So bottom line, uh, who backs up Funa in the true stud end spot and that basically 7-9 to nine technique range uh, on the outside? I think that's the top three. Adrian Jackson I listed on paper. Uh, he's going to be at the true strong side backer spot. Same thing goes to me for Andrew Fallu. We'll get to the linebacker spots and discuss that. Uh, but he had moved from inside to the outside. And at 6'3", 265, he also put on um, – uh, actually dropped weight, excuse me. No, didn't put on weight. Um, so that's an interesting move that we saw in the spring and the limited spring that we had to be able to see some personnel – but I do think at the top of the list, it's Funa followed by Townsend and Mai at the stud end spots. Now in the two interior positions, these to me, there's not really much of a uh, debate to be had here. You have two returning interior players and defenders that they're coming back for their senior years, their experience. They showed that they can be effective, really effective players that they're given roles. I don't think there's necessarily a major competition for either starting job uh, I think the backup roles are also fairly solidified, but at the true defensive tackle, true three technique, two technique, two I, uh, even maybe a little bit of shade um, in the right situation, but ultimately probably the most, mostly a true three technique. That's Austin value to a T. He was rotating with Drayton Carlberg last year, uh, depending on the game. He would either start or even if he came off the bench for Carl Berg, he ended up probably playing more sometimes. But I think this is going to be a major year for Austin Fowler, not only because it's a senior year and it has to be. Uh, I think that naturally lights a fire under somebody when they know they have to 
perform uh, when the NFL is calling, uh, and it's not a matter of choice. It's it's perform, or you're not going to put yourself in the best position going forward. I think the other thing is is that the depth at defensive tackle, uh, and you got a lot of really highly touted young players who are going to push for more and more playing time. That was mildly true last year as well. Several guys redshirted though. The redshirt freshman, the sophomore in particular, defensive tackle. I think that competition is going to really push somebody like an Austin Value uh, to continue to stay ahead and keep the starting job and stay out there for as many reps as possible and be effective. But when he's at his best, uh, I think he can be a really productive player for Oregon's defense. I think he can be the best true defensive tackle uh, and one of the best defensive tackles in the Pac-12, to be honest with you. Now that uh, Utah lost a lot of guys uh, on the inside, I think Austin Fowler can be in that conversation, can be in that conversation. There are also times where you know he wasn't as consistent, and that's one of the things he has to work on. But whether it's him at the top, or as I mentioned, some of the younger players of Brandon Dorless, who played and contributed quite a bit last year, Keon Ware-Hudson and Christian Williams both redshirted last year, that is a deep position for Oregon exiting the spring. And they've got more guys coming on the way. Uh, but we're not even going to get into all the freshman signees and who's going to be coming in and the rest because we're just talking post-spring here. Uh, are there obviously additional guys coming in both on the inside and outside along the line, some uh, linebacker, obviously, and uh, elsewhere in the secondary? Yes, but we're not going to go through all the freshmen yet because this is really a true post-spring, even though spring was only four practices. Now to the true nose tackle spot. Again, not really a debate to be had here. Uh, this is Jordan Scott's role, has been his role, will continue to be his role. Uh, there's no debate to be had here. There's no argument. There's It's <laughs> it's Jordan Scott's world, uh, and everybody else is living in it. So he's back for his senior year. He knows what he has to work on uh, in order to take that next step as the true zero technique uh, shade, which is, again, kind of a one technique, uh, just on the off, off being heads up with the center. Jordan, it's a fine role uh, in, in in a limited role in some defenses, uh, but Oregon's defense is multiple enough to where they utilize it quite a bit, and at the next level uh, is where it comes in to be a little bit more refined. And again, you have to get a little either more specialized in true true three four defenses, or again now that everybody's being a little bit more multiple, just a matter of personnel matchups and the rest. I mention all that so as to say. Where Jordan Scott has to take the next step, and he's very forthright with this. So I'm, by no means am I speaking out of school. He admits it, uh, and it's the first thing he says where he needs to improve is he needs to be a more effective pass rusher. He cannot only be a situational player. If he can, because ultimately, if he can't do that in the Pac-12, then why should anybody believe that he's nothing more than uh, anything more than a run gap filling nose tackle for the NFL? Now, you can still make a good living for that, but if you want to be a situational player or do you want to be Albert Hainsworth or Vince Wilfork at their best, that's the difference. Um, and it's very much the Wilfork role. Now, I'm not comparing where Jordan Scott is in his college career to Vince Wilfork when he played in Miami. Let's slow down. But the point is, is if you want to be even thought of anywhere remotely like those men were in their NFL careers or at times even in their college careers, then you have got to be an effective pass rusher at the college level. 
Because if you can't do it in college, why should anybody believe you're going to be able to do it against even better, bigger, stronger, grown men in the NFL? They're not. Scott knows that. He's working on that. And he knows he has to be a more effective every down player for Oregon and especially for himself. Again, talking about moving on to the next level. But at the true nose tackle spot, it's his role. There's no question about it. Popo Amabai took on a big, big jump last year. Big jump last year. Uh, so in the backup capacity at nose tackle, Oregon's got it lined up right now with Scott at the top and Amavai behind him. Uh, he was effective, and he did have disruptive plays. He had five tackles for loss with three and a half sacks. That was third on the roster, and he was basically a situational backup. So that's effective. Now, yeah, it, you know, it came out in certain spots, but ultimately the stats are the stats. The numbers don't lie. Popo had a very good year last year. Uh, com- especially compared to where he was. And if he can continue on that path or even see more production, you see what happens in 21 when Jordan Scott leaves. Well, obviously, Popo Amavai will be back for as a fifth-year senior at that point. But if Amavai takes another step forward, my goodness, uh, they could really be uh, in a pretty good spot where you know, you're talking about replacing a lot of guys uh, on a roster, particularly in the secondary couple of interior defensive linemen. What's it going to look like? Well, I say Popo took a big step last year. If he continues on that path, Oregon's going to be good at nose tackle, has been good at nose tackle, will continue to be at nose tackle, uh, not only in 2020, but potentially in 21 as well. So that brings us to the second level of the defense uh, where there's some questions, uh, but also one major, major obvious long-term answer, and that obviously is at uh, middle linebacker with Isaac Slade uh, Matatia. Uh, he is returning in the starting role. There's not much of a, again, no, no real debate here. Uh, no discussion to be had. It's his job. It's his job for the long haul. There's really not much to be said here. Uh, he's one of the better linebackers, again, in the Pac-12. Uh, he took over in the uh, starting role last year after coming off an injury the year before uh, and, in a limited playing capacity. And really took to it really, really well. Uh, was making the calls on the field already. But now with Troy Dye moving on, uh, Isaac Slade is going to be that much more important a piece for this Oregon defense, uh, especially in the second-level defenders. Who is behind him is where things get interesting to me on the depth chart because you have an MJ Cunningham who's entering his redshirt sophomore year. You have a Jimon Eford who's entering his sophomore year. And then Noah Sewell was supposed to be, uh, and I believe still is supposed to be, at the middle linebacker position. At 6'3 and 260 pounds, he is significantly larger than any of the other inside linebackers. On the other hand, in the short spring, while he went through the practices, he was limited the whole time due to injury and was expected to come back uh, off injury after spring break. Well, obviously, we all know spring practice got uh, canceled thereafter, so we never got to see Noah Sewell in spring practice at full bore. That's okay. Uh, it, we're only talking about a few practices here, but ultimately, he was a guy who could have had a fine opportunity as an early enrollee uh, to really get acclimated and maybe even push for some time by the time I could have gotten to a spring game, all those reps would have been really useful for some player, uh, any player in general, any freshman and early enrollee, but especially somebody like a Noah Sewell could have been really important uh, as they try to sort out 
who those backups are at some of the inside linebacker positions. At the weak side linebacker spot, this is where there's that one of the question marks uh, for Oregon's defense. Um, it's not a completely wide open race. I don't want to misrepresent it. It's a bit open, but not wide open. And that's because Sampson New and Drew Mathis are both back as seniors. And Sampson has played a good amount of football uh, to date. He really has. He hits like a freight train. He hits really hard. When he's on the field, he makes his presence felt. Uh, that said, as much as he's played, he's not. Um, he has not been a consistent starter. And that's not a knock on Sampson. That's just the kind of reality uh, that Oregon's defense found it in because Troy Dye was starting all the time. I mean, you, know, you can't really knock anybody who was behind Troy Dye. Uh, you know, he was starting, he was playing, and he was going to give it his all. And as we all know, uh, so anybody who was behind him wasn't going to get to see the field as much. But when Samson New got to see the field, obviously a very effective player, can play either of the inside spots. Um, but since the weak side position is the one that's open, that's where I think he'll end up taking over as the starter. Drew Mathis did play, though, uh, quite a bit, especially when Troy went down. Uh, Drew made his first appearance uh, at Washington last year and then played quite a bit more later on. Still talking about a junior college transfer. Uh, it is a senior year for both of them. This is a position where I do think Samson has absolutely the overwhelming advantage to win the starting job and take over as a starter to open the year. Having said that, because of the long-term projection at weak side backer, particularly with somebody like Justin Flo coming in, and for the purposes of uh, this conversation, even though Flo has already enrolled and technically joined the team, albeit remotely and virtually uh, so far, because he didn't get to actually take part in anything on the field in spring practice, I was kind of listing him in the summer arrivals group along with some of the other freshman signees because even though he was in that group who was already enrolled and taking class online again and obviously going through all the meeting rooms and those things because we just didn't get to see him in practice I didn't list him on the depth chart to this point however being cognizant of that I list the post spring depth chart with Samson on top Drew Mathis and like I say either MJ Cunningham or Gmon Eford behind who ends up at middle versus uh weak side Mike and Will for those of you who use that terminology We'll see in the long run. Obviously, Justin Flo is going to be uh, most likely at the weak side. If Noah Sewell's at middle, then Flo is probably going to be at weak side in the long term. With that in mind, this is kind of, I kind of view this year as a stopgap sort of year. Similar to last year at defensive end when Gus Cumberlander opened the season as the starter. Obviously, he suffered a season-ending injury. That's not exactly the way anybody would have loved to see his year end or how Kayvon Thibodeau would have wanted to take over as a starting role, but it happened. I think it could have happened without Gus getting hurt regardless, but I think we're kind of in a similar position where you have returning seniors, uh, neither of whom has ample starting experience, can be productive, can be effective at their best, but with a extraordinarily talented freshman coming in who can absolutely contend for reps contend for a backup role, and potentially contend for the starting job as the season goes on. But as we find ourselves today, in late May, post-spring, way before anything in the preseason, way before Justin Flo has even set foot on the practice field, we're not going to say he's the projected starter for Oregon's defense in 2020. I mean, you got to be you got to be fair. Uh, you got to be and realistic 
uh, to all parties here. You got to be fair to the seniors who are returning and other players who are returning. And you got to be fair to a true freshman in Justin Flo, who highly touted as he is, has not even set foot on the practice field yet. Uh, so you got to be realistic for everybody. Just as Kayvon, as I say, just as Gus was the starter to open last year. Uh, and then again, obviously the injury happened and that was extremely unfortunate. Now, that brings us to the strong side backer spot. And this was the position that Lamar Winston Jr. played last year. In the truest of senses, Oregon doesn't play a lot of this uh, as much. In the olden days, uh, you would say this was the base defense and this was uh, the Sam Backer was part of the base package. Nowadays, uh, the base package is with nickel and the Sam Backer is out more often than not. Uh, but against those traditional run teams, so especially late last year, you saw it with Utah and Wisconsin. But with other run-heavy teams like a Stanford, for example, uh, like we might see more from Cal this year, like you see with Washington, you see this role get utilized a lot more because it's much more of a traditional uh, alignment defensively to go up against multiple tight end packages uh, and pro-style offenses. With Lamar moving on, it lends itself to this is another one where there's a little bit of a competition here, to say the least. Adrian Jackson coming off an injury. He's at the top of the list on the depth chart as of now. But again, this could be very much a situational thing of do they need the true strong side backer with a uh, mix of pass rush, in which case Adrian Jackson is absolutely that guy. We saw it in 2018. He had some great playmaking ability by the end of the year. Uh, as a true freshman, he made some fine plays. But got hurt last year, and we never got to see uh, that next step from him. He's probably atop the depth chart. But in another situation, I mentioned Andrew Fallu earlier, moving out from the interior of the defensive line to an edge position. I'm not. It's not clear to me just yet. We heard from Andy Avalos back in the early spring that Fallu is an edge guy. Didn't see him line up as much at the stud end position with the edge players at 265 pounds he could easily be in that mix with a Isaac Townsend and Trevin Mai no question of and uh Mace Funa for that matter absolutely if you were to go with a uh pass rushing package in a true 4-3 whereby someone like Kayvon Thibodeau maybe even bumps inside you could do something quite interesting with a Thibodeau in the interior, Funa on one edge, Andrew Fallu on the other edge, Adrian Jackson uh, in the stu- in the strong side backer position, or an Isaac Townsend in an edge. You could come up with all kinds of really exotic uh, pass rushing packages in a true four three defense. So that's why I listed Fallu in the strong side backer spot as well. Andrew Johnson Jr. Uh, I also listed here because he's absolutely uh, the quintessential in the strong side backer role. And Avalos mentioned that he would be, that's basically the role he'll be at. But he finds himself in a peculiar position because whether Fallu's in that role or not is kind of a moot point. Uh, Andrew Johnson Jr. is just one of those players that we really didn't hear much at all from last year in any capacity. Uh, and as a redshirt sophomore, you know, I'm not saying that time is up against them entirely. Redshirt Jr., I would say that. Redshirt Sophomore, I wouldn't. But uh, he's somebody who, on the not just the depth chart, strong side backer, but anywhere on the defense, uh, finds himself in a spot where he's got to carve out a role here because more guys are coming in. Uh, like I say, whether that's a Justin Flo at weak side, whether that's a Jackson LeDuc 
who could end up at the strong side backer spot. Again, we're not going to go through all the various freshmen because we're not 100% sure where they are definitely going to line up. But as more and more of those players come in, they're going to challenge guys, whether they're redshirt freshmen, redshirt sophomores, redshirt juniors. They're going to challenge those guys for reps uh, and roles on this defense going forward. So all these guys, uh, quite frankly, in the strong side backer position, I think there's quite a bit of competition I think there's quite a a bit of uncertainty and one of those spots on the defense that there's going to be uh, a lot determined in the preseason, to be honest with you. I think there's a lot in that position in particular that we're going to find out more in the uh, weeks ahead in the preseason. That brings us to the Oregon secondary. And as I say, I've already uh, got two of those positions in the boundary and field cornerback spots written up on OregonLive.com. Uh, We will make our way through the field and boundary safety spots as well as nickel and dime. Those are going to uh, be released on the website uh, on OregonLive.com for the Oregonian throughout the course of the week, but we'll discuss them here on the podcast, kind of give you an early sneak peek uh, in some of those roles. But the outside corner spots, uh, it's obvious, again, there's not much of a competition here with Diamond Lenore and Thomas Graham Jr. both returning at boundary and field corner respectively. There's no debate. There's no discussion. This is Oregon starters. There's no way around that. Uh, that's when you have when you, this is this is one of those positions that Oregon's got kind of an embarrassment of riches uh, at the top of the outside corners and really across the secondary. Uh, it's on paper should be the best returning secondary in the Pac-12. On paper should be one of the best returning secondaries in the sport. If you go by Pro Football Focus, might be the best returning secondary in the sport. So. At all the various positions we're going to talk about and mention over and over and over again, returning seniors, returning starters, returning All-American candidates, all Pac-12 candidates, all the rest. Uh, But again, Lenore at the boundary position in particular uh, with DJ James behind him. I don't think that there's uh, really much competition for either role uh, as far as the starter role or the backup role. I think they're both in those spots uh, quite solidified. And as far as for the 2020 season, and then when again, when you project out longer term, I think James takes over for Lenore uh, or could be in a competition with Dante Manning, depending on which side he ends up at. Uh, and given the relative depth of the field and boundary spots, I think Manning could end up at boundary. Uh, but again, very early, so I don't want to go too far in, uh, out there and, and project something incorrectly. Graham, similar spot on the uh, field side. We saw him also mix it up uh, and play a little bit at nickel uh, and mix it up with the safeties a little bit in the spring, mainly because not only of his versatility and where he projects in the NFL, I think he projects as a nickel corner in the NFL. Uh, If he were playing elsewhere, I think he, when I say elsewhere, elsewhere where uh, there would be a larger crop of taller outside corners uh, if you were on a team with that. And that's not a knock on Oregon secondary. This is reality. Their outside corners are not all 6'2 and 6'3. Graham and Michael Wright are both 5'11", is what it is. Uh, But if we're on a team with more tall outside corners, which you see more of in the NFL, that's why I say he projects more as a nickelback uh, in the NFL. As a result, that's why we saw him a little bit on the inside in the spring combined with Michael Wright. So the starting role, that's Graham's. Personnel packages, Wright can absolutely take over, no problem. We saw that at times when uh, one outside corner went down or the other. 
they put Graham over to the boundary in order to get right on the field when uh, the Amador went down at one point or another last year, um, and sometimes just in sub-packages and the rest. And again, that now they could move Graham to the inside as well. Triquiz Bridges, I think, is a uh, interesting kind of wild-card player in this secondary in that he opened last fall camp when he arrived at deep safety. They moved him over to corner in one of the early practices, saw that he played it well, and because of his size, offers Oregon as an outside corner at six foot three, like I was just mentioning, a team that doesn't have a ton of six two, six three outside corners. Well, Bridges is that guy, uh, and you don't have a ton of six foot three deep safeties. Not to say it's never happened; it's just more often than not the deep safeties usually find themselves in that six two or shorter, uh, maybe even six foot or shorter kind of role. Bridges against taller outside receivers certainly offers Oregon uh, an interesting matchup when you want to start getting into the right personnel rotations. We're still talking about a redshirt freshman who didn't play last year, so don't want to get too far ahead of our skis, but when you talk about projecting forward, when you're talking about trying to uh, scheme up certain matchups, personnel packages, and the like, I could see TriQuest Bridges offering the Ducks and Andy Avalos just some options uh, for how to approach things uh, on the outside in particular. Now looking ahead to some of the inside spots at nickel, Javon Holland. I mean, what what is there to say? Similar to uh, Kayvon Thibodeau, uh, a massively disruptive player, incredibly important player, even more important schematically, believe it or not, to making Oregon's defense function as a scheme, as a system, because of the importance of the nickel role. Javon Holland and what he brings to the Oregon defense uh, and his versatility is even more important than a Kayvon Thibodeau. Believe it or not, uh, that's because of just how critical that piece is. That if you have the piece in the defense, that's always going to be a vitally important role uh, in Andy Avalos's defense, as the end or, or stud end is as well. And anybody could say a middle linebacker in almost any defense you can come up with, but because the nickel spot is so important under basically any circumstance when it's played exceptionally well that allows so much more flexibility that allows so much more variety uh for a defensive coordinator in terms of play calling in terms of personnel packages in terms of there's just such a massive variety that is allowed to function allowed to happen all over the field. If that nickelback is capable as Javon Holland is, that provides so much more flexibility to the entire defense. Whereas you can have an all world caliber defensive end that may cover up some things for you in the secondary uh, and deficiencies potentially. If you are a team that has a lot of youth back there, for example, but, but, a strong defensive end. Ultimately, every team has defensive ends. Their relative strength and effectiveness is going to be variable, but in and of itself, merely having a really good edge player offers you and makes you a good defense, but the role isn't as critical in terms of making the entire defense function, relatively speaking here. Obviously, it's incredibly important to have a disruptive edge player. Yeah, if you want to be elite and want to contend for college football playoff spots and national championships and conference championships, you need that player. 
But in order to allow for the variety of play calling, personnel packages, scheme adjustments, and the rest, the nickel spot in Avalos' defense and what Javon Holland brings to it with just the most diverse skill set on the team, uh, length, range, game IQ, uh, I mean, everything. Every which skill you want to rattle off, uh, size, speed, toughness, everything. Uh, he, he really does. He brings everything to the table. Uh, he is a really disruptive player defensively. Uh, we'll get into the punt return role here in a moment when we get to the specialist. But there, there's really not a, a limit of things you can say about Javon Holland and what he brings to this defense. He's one of the most important players uh, on the entire roster. Uh, he's one of the most valuable players on the entire roster. He should be a Thorpe candidate. Again, he probably could easily – I'm not going to say easily. Let's Let's not – go too far he could be a Thorpe finalist this year where I think he was just a semifinalist last year should be in the All-America conversation whether it's preseason during the season after the season what have you uh, he's that caliber player and some of the very early mock drafts have him as a potential first round pick if he continues on the trajectory that he was on uh, I think he'll absolutely live up to that he's Oregon's leading returning tackler and that goes to show, again, he's a second-level defender uh, as a result of playing in the nickel spot. Between that and the loss of Troy Dye, he finds himself as the leading returning tackler. But you don't get that merely because you play the position. There are guys who can play, whether it's nickel or whether it's box safety. There are players who get production merely because they play the role. Javon Holland... If it's, it's not just the tackles number that you're paying attention to. It's all the other things he brings to the table. It's the interceptions. It's the tackles for loss. It's the pass breakups. It's, and he can affect the game anywhere he lines up on the field. Uh, yes, he's going to be the starting nickel. Can he play deep safety? Obviously, we saw that in 2018 when he was a true freshman. Uh, the versatility is there. Again, I, I, I could go on and on and on. Bottom line, uh, when you want to talk about the top defenders that this team has, He's probably number one. Thibodeau could be number two uh, at the uh, defensive end position. And then when you want to go elsewhere in the secondary, boy, it's quite a deep conversation. Uh, and you could probably debate back and forth um, from game to game who's more important or not. But we'll get to those deep safety spots now. And starting at boundary, Brady Breeze, to go from where he was at the beginning of last spring Buried on the depth chart, uh, really a piece that just had no particular role, wasn't productive coming off the year before. Uh, if you had heard that he had entered the transfer portal based off production where he found himself, I don't think anybody would have been stunned. It was just kind of nature of the beast based on where he was on paper. And to go from that to ending the spring as the backup, to Nick Pickett and really spending most of last season as the backup to Nick Pickett to being basically shot out of a cannon in the last six games. He had 40 tackles in the last six games, 40 and created one turnover after another, uh, scored defensive touchdowns, forced fumbles, fumble returns. He was everywhere, everywhere. Now, Having said that, that makes him the absolute unequivocal favorite to start 
uh, at boundary safety entering this season. What if you try to extrapolate and project that volume of tackles that he had over the last six games over the course of a 12 game season, and then however many games Oregon may play thereafter in terms of the postseason, the numbers could be absolutely mind blowing for a Power Five conference uh, deep safety. They could be off the charts. However, context, that's why I say those numbers could be so extraordinarily high. Let's not get unrealistic. He closed the season basically as a guy playing with his hair on fire. Can Brady Breeze take that and apply that to a full season in a every week starting role? If he can, I, I mean, the sky really is the limit. As far as what he can do in his senior season of college, I'm not going to pretend to know and be able to project for you with any degree of accuracy at this point what that means for him in his NFL future. Because a year ago at this time, no one in their right mind would have had the conversation about Brady Breeze in the NFL because of what he was coming off and the production wasn't there. But now, especially based off how he finished last season, uh, I mean, I'm very interested to see and hear uh, from NFL scouts and get some feedback from people in NFL circles about where they see where he might be able to fit uh, and project at that level. Because having said all the production and, and incredible play that he had to end last season, we are still talking about a relatively small sample size. So he's a player who's clearly on the rise, clearly projected to be a starter this year. Uh, if he can apply it to a full season, again, sky's the limit in terms of what he can do at the college level, what that means for him in his long-term future for the pro level. Uh, anyone's guess. I'm not even going to try to project it right now. Uh, it's just it, it's too difficult based off the, the sample size we have right now. But uh, clearly, again, a player on the rise who had a terrific, terrific finish to last season. As a result, though, it makes the field safety position uh, one where there's some flexibility. Because Verone McKinley III started off the year last year at nickel as a redshirt freshman. Uh, he got bounced back to deep safety. Javon Holland took over at nickel. They made that flip. And he really stayed there for pretty much the whole year and had a productive year as a redshirt freshman. At the end of the year, when they played Utah and Wisconsin, those are run-heavy teams. And Andy Avalos made the uh, strategic and schematic adjustment to put Nick Pickett over at field safety and in essence was really playing two boundary safeties was playing a box safety with breeze and a true boundary safety with Pickett, or vice versa, depending on uh, the down and, and where they were on the field and what have you, but really was playing with two boundary safeties, a box safety and boundary safety are just two true boundary safeties, depending on the, the down and distance. So in trying to project forward uh, and what that might mean for 2020, there's variety, there's versatility. Uh, I think, again, embarrassment of riches in that Pickett's a senior with experience, starting experience at that, uh, not a senior like a Samson New who has experience but just not starting experience. Uh, Pickett is a senior with ample starting experience. That's the difference. I think that the that him and McKinley are going to rotate. Uh, who starts is – I'm not going to say moot exactly, but who starts is – not as significant. Uh, I think it could look almost similar, almost, to Drayton Carlberg and Austin Fowley last year. 
there were plenty of games that Carlberg started. There were plenty and plenty of those games where Falu ended up playing more or being more productive. So I think you could see things like that. I think it could be schematic. I think it could be uh, strategic based off is the team, uh, again, a two tight end team and a run first team like a Stanford, like a Washington, or conversely, uh, if they're playing Washington State, then that lends itself to being that much more of a passing team. And then you're talking about nickel, and then you're talking about dime. And that's where we're going to get to that. We already mentioned the nickel spot, and we wrap up. Uh, the defensive personnel breakdown discussion, uh, and we'll get to the specialists in a moment. But the last position on the defense that I wanted to mention was dime. And this is kind of a wild card spot. Oregon did not play a lot of true dime last year. Uh, in the short spring, Andy Avalos was experimenting with all kinds of things, whether that was Thomas Graham working with the inside defenders and Nichols and, and deep safeties whether that was, uh, again, Holland obviously can play pretty much anywhere. Verone McKinley also playing between safety and nickel because of the just versatility of so many of Oregon's defensive backs and where you have a Mike Kale Wright being able to uh, easily be a starter and be on the outside. That allows Graham to be versatile enough to move over to nickel. Well, if you move him to nickel, where does Holland go? Uh well, now there creates the possibility for a true dime for additional exotic packages uh, because dime is a pretty general six defensive back package for those who don't know the, the, all the intricacies. Uh, it's pretty basic. When you go four and five wide uh, on offense, you have to go five or six deep defensive back wise on defense to, to counter. They didn't do as much of that last year. They stuck a lot with true nickel either way because it's year two and because of the versatility and ample depth uh, at the corner and safety positions, Oregon finds itself where, yeah, it can easily, easily use dime. You could come up with instances where you could literally draw up almost any number of variety, but you could draw up situations where on the right down and distance against a team like Hawaii, uh, against a team like Washington State in particular, where Oregon could play seven or more defensive backs easily. Again, because start off with the basic five of Graham, Lenore, Holland, uh, Breeze, and let's say McKinley. Well, if you needed to go with a sixth, you could put Pickett and McKinley. If you need or Graham right with a Pickett McKinley deep. If you needed to go with seven, well, like I say, now now you get to all kinds of fun. And Holland could basically serve as a de facto edge type player, either in coverage or as a pass rush option. Graham at nickel, McKinley at dime, Pickett at field safety, Breeze at deep with Graham, uh, Graham uh, with Lenore and Wright at the outside corner spots. If you want to get even crazier and start doing what the Philadelphia Eagles have employed over the years or what Rex Ryan did at times uh, back with the New York Jets or the Baltimore Ravens, where he went with nine defensive back packages in certain spots. I know the New Orleans Saints, I think, have also tinkered with this at times. Uh, 
you can get, I mean, you can really dial up almost anything. You don't see as much of that at the college level for myriad reasons. Generally speaking, it's due to just a lack of time <laughs> that coaches have to install all these things uh, in order for one to have it installed and two for the players to actually remember everything. Uh, it's not that easy on the NFL level. It's much easier to do because they're professionals. They don't have to worry about going to class. They just, and then they can change the game plan from one week to the other. Uh, and you might have only seven or eight or nine defensive backs on the entire roster, but you can you can draw up situations where you can rely on all of them on any given play. At the college level, a little bit harder to do that. But you definitely could see that from Oregon this year. You saw Andy Avalos use all kinds of variety in the front seven last year. Obviously, the base being a four-down front with two linebackers and the nickel secondary is the base package. But with that front, it wasn't always stud end, D-tackle, nose tackle, true defensive end. There were times where he employed all kinds of mixes. Uh, as I say, when we, when we mentioned before about the strong side backer, uh, you could throw just any number of variety. You could go down to one true linebacker. There were times where they did play one, one true backer, which is generally a key to seeing um, a dime package. But because they didn't play as much true dime, it was a one linebacker, like five, it was like a five, one, five, almost sort of defense. It was interesting. Um, just interesting, different mixes. So again, when you, if you want to get into the true strategy and just the, the chess match that is uh, football from the defensive perspective, I think what Andy Avalos can end up dialing up this year for this defense uh, could be really interesting. Uh, if, if that's something that, that you're interested in, if that's something that, you know, you have a passion for and understanding of, I think this Oregon defense not only has a ton of talent, uh, especially in the secondary. And yes, when you mention uh, an Isaac Slade in the middle or a Kayvon Thibodeau off one edge in particular, and Mace Funa for that matter, I think this defense schematically could do some things this year that will be different, that will be exciting for fans, that can get a whole lot of speed and playmakers out there. And above all, Forget about, even if all right. Let's just say you're the casual fan. You don't care about any of that. You don't care about you know necessarily the uh, the most details. All you want to know about is do they play better and do they win? Well, when you're playing air raid style teams like USC, uh, and when you're playing a offense with Nick Rolovich in Washington State, and they're going to be going four and five wide all the time. Well, you're going to need to have some answers. And clearly, we know that the air raid uh, has bothered this Oregon defense for a while. Mike Leach is no longer around, but whether it's Rolovich, whether it's Graham Harrell, clearly, those wide-open passing attacks are and they're not just a challenge for Oregon, by the way. They're a challenge for a lot of people. But with the talent that USC has at quarterback and receiver, with the new scheme that Washington State's going to be bringing, slight, similar to the air raid, but not exactly the same, uh, you know that they're going to be passing a ton. And you have to still play Hawaii, uh, who has obviously a lot of pieces there as well, even though they're going through a coaching change. So, again, it'll be interesting to see. But as a result, even if you don't know all the finer points of it, which is fine, you have to understand that why are they doing this beyond the fact that they have a lot of depth and a lot of talent? They're doing it because 
They know they have to play teams, whether it's a Trey Lance and North Dakota State, one of the best quarterbacks in all of college football coming in in game one at the FCS level, or a Justin Fields in week two, a wide-open offense in Hawaii, a wide-open offense in Washington State, an air raid in USC. They're going to be playing more four- and five-wide sets. Well, in order to counter that, you have to add more and more defensive back packages and also be capable of playing a true 4-3 with a legitimate strong side backer, which, like we said before, is a spot where there are some uh, questions to be sorted out. That brings us lastly to the specialists uh, at the return game. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because uh, there's not much of a debate. Javon Holland is at punt return. He's one of the best punt returners in the Pac-12 in the country. If he qualified statistically, I think he would have ranked sixth last year uh, in punt return yards average. So his spot is dead set and ironclad. Michael Wright, clearly what you saw from him in the second half of last season at kickoff return once he took over the job, uh, that position is his until he's no longer here. Uh, that is his role for a long, long time because Oregon went from ranking, I think it was 53rd, uh, entering the USC week to ending the season in the top 10 nationally in kickoff return yards. And that's because that's that's what one, any one return can do for you. But obviously, Michael Wright had more than just one very long kickoff return. Uh, he is a game changer. He's a game changer on special teams, and he's potentially a game changer on defense. So those spots are locked in. Uh, the long snapper role with Carson Battles is locked in. Kicker, Camden Lewis obviously had an erratic year as a true freshman. Finished stronger than he started. Had his moment against Washington State. Did well late. But having said that, they're going to create some competition. They're bringing in a preferred walk-on who's a heralded uh, kicker. Not every kicker ends up getting a scholarship immediately, but we'll see what that competition looks like. We'll find out more in the preseason. Punter. Blake Maimone had a terrific year last year, uh, far more than really I think anybody could have expected. As a result, he moves on. That creates some uncertainty. Tom Snee is coming off a redshirt year where he didn't kick. And you got it in fairness to him, going back to 2018, he was going out there a lot in the rotation with Maimone and doing the short kicks. Well, there's a question. Is Tom Snee capable of absolutely blasting a ball uh, as Maimone did at full bore. Blake Maimone took a huge jump last year. And when he was really just, you know, shooting for the moon, he could really boot it uh, when he wanted to. Is Tom Snee capable of that? We don't know. Uh, and that's not to say he can't. It's just, we don't know. We haven't seen it. Uh, he didn't kick it all last year. And when he kicked in 2018, he was put out there on short fields to, you know, basically chip shot the ball into the corner. We haven't had to see him turn it loose. So is he capable of being a every week punter uh, at the Division One level? You know, you saw him in the limited spots on short fields, but that's situational punting. To be a, you know, all the time guy, you got to be able to knock a ball 45 plus yards on occasion. We haven't seen that yet. Doesn't mean he can't. Just haven't seen it. And to the holder spot, uh, not that it's the biggest role in the world, but uh, Snee was there before. Behind Maimone, easily could do it again. Uh, having said that, because Oregon has depth uh, at quarterback in particular, could have as many as five scholarship quarterbacks uh, on the roster. Could. Uh, we'll see. If they do, 
it's certainly not outside the realm of possibility that one of those players ends up serving as the holder, uh, especially if you want to get into the possibilities of, well, if you ever want to be able to do something off two-point conversion with the same personnel, uh, you're probably better off having uh, a true quarterback in there. But they had Maimon do it uh, and obviously pulled a great reverse uh, and, and flip play and trick play back in 2018. So you can't say it's impossible for a punter to do it, but you'd love if a quarterback could. So that brings us through the defense and specialist conversation. And that is our look uh, in the post-spring depth chart analysis for the Oregon Ducks. Again, we will go through all the freshmen when we get closer to the season. We'll be able to, uh, once everybody is fully arrived and we know everything in terms of uh, when is camp going to open and all the rest, everything at this point, too speculative to, to go on a full podcast about that. Uh, we had weighed in last week into terms in terms of some of the questions that have to be answered and the, all the rest, but we're not going to uh, go totally down the rabbit hole of speculation here. Bottom line is everybody still wants to play 12 games, wants to play the whole season as close to the true schedule as possible. Are there still a lot of questions to be answered? Yes. Uh, are they any closer to being answered today than they were a week ago, two weeks ago, a month ago, two months ago? Yeah, but they're not definitively making those decisions yet in terms of the actual season is concerned. I do think they have a little bit of the luxury of time, and by they, I mean the greater NCAA apparatus, the conference commissioners, uh, the athletic directors. Everybody has a little bit more time uh, at their disposal. First things first was getting players back on campuses uh, and working out in on-campus gyms, fitness centers, facilities. And it was good to see... Friday afternoon, uh, Oregon Governor Kate Brown getting back to me uh, and the Oregonian saying uh, her office, her spokesman, getting back to me to say uh, that she will ensure that the Ducks and the Beavers, for that matter, uh, will not be at a competitive disadvantage uh, and she will ensure, make sure that they are not at a competitive disadvantage relative to their peers. That's good to hear. That, On the other hand, that's what is said. What was not said is a firm commitment to modify uh, the standing executive order from the governor and the reason why there's any uh issue here is in the counties uh involved are in phase one of reopening uh, and could potentially move to phase two of reopening very soon well with the ncaa lifting its moratorium on uh on-campus voluntary workout activities starting june 1st it begs the question, will Oregon and Oregon State in particular, or anybody else in the state for that matter, uh, when will they be able to return to campus? Under the current standing executive order, uh, colleges and universities in the state are treated differently. They have to go through their uh, spring term, which wraps up, uh, finals wrap up on the 12th, so June 13th would be the first day. That, according to uh, Oregon AD Rob Mullins, uh, who spoke to us about a week or so ago. Having said that, uh, realistically, the if that still remains the date, then the first day that uh, Oregon athletes could return on campus, in theory, would be realistically the Monday, June fifteenth. Uh, is that a massive disadvantage? No, but after the NCAA made its announcement last week, uh, first for football, men's and women's basketball, then for all sports, uh, by the end of the week, the SEC and the Big Twelve both announced. Uh, that their athletes could return starting on June 8th and 15th, respectively. Ohio State has already committed to saying its athletes are going to be returning on June 8th. 
Uh, North Dakota State has already said its athletes will be coming back, and they're at the FCS level. So there, there's more governance from the uh, NCAA involved. And then just directly with uh, the FCS conference uh, and, the, and the state legislation and whatnot in North Dakota, which has not had a stay-at-home order. So having said all these things, is Oregon going to be at a competitive disadvantage relative to teams who get back on June 1, teams that get back on June 8, teams that get back on June 15th? Well, June 15th, no. But regardless of which day one of their opponents gets back, that is part of the competitive advantage, disadvantage, equity conversation. The other piece to where this actually comes in and where my question to the governor's office was framed was partially a competitive conversation with competition around the country. But the issue of whether or not the governor's office will amend a part of the executive order insofar as it applies to the on-campus gyms, fitness centers, and facilities for athletes is if the county is in phase one and public and private gyms and fitness centers can open, albeit with all sorts of distancing requirements, hygiene requirements, and all the rest. But if those facilities can open in the county where either UO is, obviously in Lane County, and we'll keep it to that because this is obviously uh, Ducks Confidential Podcast. If you can go to a gym in Lane County in a private gym as part of phase one, and you've been able to do that for over a week now, why should the on-campus facility at the University of Oregon be treated differently merely because it happens to be at a college or university? If we are restricting it to the college athlete, the scholarship college athletes, and walk-on college athletes for that matter, but the college athletes at the University of Oregon, who were naturally the people who it was restricted to in the first place, if we're confining it to that group, if we're acting in the interest of college athlete safety and betterment and development and equity to the general population as well as their peers elsewhere in the country, well, then naturally you would say, why should they their first day uh, to be able to take the building be June, again, 13th, 14th, realistically, really the 15th? Why should it be then? Why shouldn't it be? frankly, June 1, based on the fact that the public gym, or the private gym for that matter, uh, is already available to the general public in Lane County. Why is that facility being viewed any differently than the on-campus facility would be for the college athlete at the University of Oregon? That was the question of the governor's office. The answer and response in the statement from her spokesman was that she will make sure that they are not at a competitive disadvantage. We'll see what that has in store in the long run, if that means a change to the executive order to uh, create a little bit of wiggle room there, or if that just means that Oregon's athletes aren't going to be able to really get going until June 15th. Huge disadvantage compared to teams who are getting back on June 8th? Eh, Not necessarily, but it's again, it's not even so much a heads-up comparison to uh, Oregon and Ohio State. It's a comparison of the University of Oregon on-campus workout facility for athletes compared to any number of private gym and fitness centers in Lane County that has been in Phase 1 for over a week and can easily be on track to enter Phase 2 on June the 5th. But, again, we'll follow up on that conversation later on, and we'll go over all the news as it develops. 
uh, in terms of the on-campus return to athletes, in terms of budgets, in terms of uh, game contracts if need be, and where things stand in the process of the 2020 season going on as scheduled or any modifications or all the rest. We'll discuss that in the weeks ahead right here on the Ducks Confidential Podcast.